This is Chapter 52 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 52. Since I desire in this chapter to say an instructive word or two about the silver mines, the reader may take this fair warning and skip if he chooses. The year 1863 was perhaps the very top blossom and culmination of the flush times. Virginia swarmed with men and vehicles to that degree that the place looked like a very hive, that is, when one's vision could pierce through the thick fog of alkali dust that was generally blowing in summer. I will say, concerning this dust, that if you drove ten miles through it, you and your horses would be coated with it a sixteenth of an inch thick, and present an outside appearance that was a uniform pale yellow color, and your buggy would have three inches of dust in it, thrown there by the wheels. The delicate scales used by the assayers were enclosed in glass cases, intended to be airtight, and yet some of this dust was so impalpable, and so invisibly fine, that it would get in, somehow, and impair the accuracy of those scales. Speculation ran riot, and yet there was a world of substantial business going on, too. All freights were brought over the mountains from California, 150 miles, by pack-train partly, and partly in huge wagons drawn by such long mule-teams that each team amounted to a procession, and it did seem, sometimes, that the grand combined procession of animals stretched unbroken from Virginia to California. Its long route was traceable clear across the deserts of the territory by the writhing serpent of dust it lifted up. By these wagons, freights over that hundred and fifty miles were two hundred dollars a ton for small lots, same price for all express matter brought by stage, and one hundred dollars a ton for full loads. One Virginia firm received one hundred tons of freight a month, and paid ten thousand dollars a month freightage. In the winter the freights were much higher. All the bullion was shipped in bars by stage to San Francisco. A bar was usually about twice the size of a pig of lead, and contained from fifteen hundred to three thousand dollars, according to the amount of gold mixed with the silver, and the freight on it, when the shipment was large, was one and a quarter per cent of its intrinsic value. So the freight on these bars probably averaged something more than twenty-five dollars each. Small shippers paid two per cent. There were three stages a day, each way, and I have seen the outgoing stages carry away a third of a ton of bullion each, and more than once I saw them divide a two-ton lot and take it off. However, these were extraordinary events. Mr. Valentine, Wells Fargo's agent, has handled all of the bullion shipped through the Virginia office for many a month. To his memory, which is excellent, we are indebted for the following exhibit of the company's business in the Virginia office since the 1st of January, 1862. From January 1st to April 1st, about $270,000 worth of bullion passed through that office. During the next quarter, $570,000. Next quarter, $800,000. Next quarter, $956,000. Next quarter, $1,275,000, and for the quarter ending on the 30th of last June, about $1,600,000. This was in 
Thus, in a year and a half, the Virginia office only shipped $5,330,000 in bullion. During the year 1862, they shipped $2,615,000, so we perceive the average shipments have more than doubled in the last six months. This gives us room to promise for the Virginia office $500,000 a month for the year 1863, though perhaps judging by the steady increase in the business, we are underestimating somewhat. This gives us $6 million for the year. Gold Hill and Silver City together can beat us. We will give them $10 million. To Dayton, Empire City, Ophir, and Carson City, we will allow an aggregate of $8 million, which is not over the mark, perhaps, and may possibly be a little under it. To Esmeralda, we give $4 million. To Reese, River, and Humboldt, $2 million, which is liberal now, but may not be before the year is out. So we prognosticate that the yield of bullion this year will be about $30 million. Placing the number of mills in the territory at 100, this gives to each the labor of producing $300,000 in bullion during the 12 months, allowing them to run 300 days in the year, which none of them more than do. This makes their work average $1,000 a day. Say the mills average twenty tons of rock a day, and this rock worth fifty dollars as a general thing, and you have the actual work of our one hundred mills figured down to a spot one thousand dollars a day each, and thirty million dollars a year in the aggregate. Enterprise. A considerable overestimate. M. T. Two tons of silver bullion would be in the neighborhood of forty bars, and the freight on it over $1,000. Each coach always carried a deal of ordinary express matter beside, and also from 15 to 20 passengers at from $25 to $30 a head. With six stages going all the time, Wells Fargo & Company's Virginia City business was important and lucrative. All along under the center of Virginia and Gold Hill, for a couple of miles ran the great Comstock Silver Lode, a vein of ore from fifty to eighty feet thick between its solid walls of rock, a vein as wide as some of New York's streets. I will remind the reader that in Pennsylvania a coal vein only eight feet wide is considered ample. Virginia was a busy city of streets and houses above ground. Under it was another busy city down in the bowels of the earth, where a great population of men thronged in and out among the intricate maze of tunnels and drifts, flitting hither and thither under a winking sparkle of lights, and over their heads towered a vast web of interlocking timbers that held the walls of the gutted Comstock apart. These timbers were as large as a man's body, and the framework stretched upward so far that no eye could pierce to its top through the closing gloom. It was like peering up through the clean-picked ribs and bones of some colossal skeleton. Imagine such a framework two miles long, sixty feet wide, and higher than any church spire in America. Imagine this stately lattice-work stretching down Broadway from St. Nicholas to Wall Street, and a Fourth of July procession reduced to pygmies, parading on top of it and flaunting their flags high above the pinnacle of Trinity Steeple. One can imagine that— but he cannot well imagine what that forest of timbers cost, from the time they were felled in the pineries beyond Washoe Lake, hauled up and around Mount Davidson, at atrocious rates of freightage, then squared, let down into the deep maw of the mine, and built up there. 
twenty ample fortunes would not timber one of the greatest of those silver mines. The Spanish proverb says it requires a gold mine to run a silver one, and it is true. A beggar with a silver mine is a pitiable pauper indeed if he cannot sell. I spoke of the underground Virginia as a city. The Gould and Curry is only one single mine under there, among a great many others. Yet the Gould and Curry's streets of dismal drifts and tunnels were five miles in extent altogether, and its population five hundred miners. Taken as a whole, the underground city had some thirty miles of streets and a population of five or six thousand. In this present day some of those populations are at work from twelve to sixteen hundred feet under Virginia and Gold Hill, and the signal-bells that tell them what the superintendent above ground desires them to do are struck by telegraph as we strike a fire-alarm. Sometimes men fall down a shaft there a thousand feet deep. In such cases the usual plan is to hold an inquest. If you wish to visit one of those mines, you may walk through a tunnel about half a mile long if you prefer, or you may take the quicker plan of shooting like a dart down a shaft on a small platform. It is like tumbling down through an empty steeple feet first. When you reach the bottom, you take a candle, and tramp through drifts and tunnels where throngs of men are digging and blasting. You watch them send up tubs full of great lumps of stone, silver ore. You select choice specimens from the mass as souvenirs. You admire the world of skeleton timbering. You reflect frequently that you are buried under a mountain, a thousand feet below daylight. Being in the bottom of the mine, you climb from gallery to gallery, up endless ladders that stand straight up and down. When your legs fail you at last, you lie down in a small box-car in a cramped incline, like a half-up-ended sewer, and are dragged up to daylight feeling as if you are crawling through a coffin that has no end to it. Arrived at the top, you find a busy crowd of men receiving the ascending cars and tubs, and dumping the ore from an elevation into long rows of bins capable of holding half a dozen tons each. Under the bins are rows of wagons, loading from chutes and trap-doors in the bins, and down the long street is a procession of these wagons wending toward the silver-mills with their rich freight. It is all done, now, and there you are. You need never go down again, for you have seen it all. If you have forgotten the process of reducing the ore in the mill and making the silver bars, you can go back and find it again in my Esmeralda chapters, if so disposed. Of course these mines cave in, in places, occasionally, and then it is worth one's while to take the risk of descending into them and observing the crushing power exerted by the pressing weight of a settling mountain. I published such an experience in the Enterprise once, and from it I will take an extract. AN HOUR IN THE CAVED MINES We journeyed down into the Ophir mine yesterday to see the earthquake. We could not go down the deep incline, because it still has a propensity to cave in places. Therefore we travelled through the long tunnel which enters the hill above the Ophir office, and then by means of a series of long ladders, climbed away down from the first to the fourth gallery. Traversing a drift, we came to the Spanish line, passed five sets of timbers still uninjured, and found the earthquake. Here was as complete a chaos as ever was seen, vast masses of earth and splintered and broken timbers piled confusedly together, with scarcely an aperture left large enough for a cat to creep through. 
rubbish was still falling at intervals from above, and one timber which had braced others earlier in the day was now crushed down out of its former position, showing that the caving and settling of the tremendous mass was still going on. We were in that portion of the Ophir known as the North Mines. Returning to the surface, we entered a tunnel leading into the Central, for the purpose of getting into the main Ophir. Descending a long incline in this tunnel, we traversed a drift or so, and then went down a deep shaft from whence we proceeded into the fifth gallery of the Ophir. From a side drift we crawled through a small hole, and got into the midst of the earthquake again. Earth and broken timbers mingled together without regard to grace or symmetry. A large portion of the second, third, and fourth galleries had caved in and gone to destruction, the two latter at seven o'clock on the previous evening. At the turntable, near the northern extremity of the fifth gallery, two big piles of rubbish had forced their way through from the fifth gallery, and from the looks of the timbers more was about to come. These beams are solid, eighteen inches square. First a great beam is laid on the floor, then upright ones, five feet high, stand on it, supporting another horizontal beam, and so on, square above square, like the framework of a window. The superincumbent weight was sufficient to mash the ends of those great upright beams fairly into solid wood of the horizontal ones three inches, compressing and bending the upright beam till it curved like a bow. Before the Spanish caved in, some of their twelve-inch horizontal timbers were compressed in this way until they were only five inches thick. Imagine the power it must take to squeeze a solid log together in that way. Here also was a range of timbers, for a distance of twenty feet, tilted six inches out of the perpendicular by the weight resting upon them from the caved galleries above. You could hear things cracking and giving way, and it was not pleasant to know that the world overhead was slowly and silently sinking down upon you. The men down in the mine do not mind it, however. Returning along the fifth gallery, we struck the safe part of the Ophir incline, and went down into the sixth but we found ten inches of water there, and had to come back. In repairing the damage done to the incline, the pump had to be stopped for two hours, and in the meantime the water gained about a foot. However, the pump was at work again, and the flood water was decreasing. We climbed up to the fifth gallery again, and sought a deep shaft, whereby we might descend to another part of the sixth, out of reach of the water, but suffered disappointment, as the men had gone to dinner, and there was no one to man the windlass. So, having seen the earthquake, we climbed out at the Union incline and tunnel, and adjourned, all dripping with candle-grease and perspiration, to lunch at the Ophir office. During the great flush year of 1863, Nevada claims to have produced twenty-five million dollars in bullion, almost, if not quite, a round million to each thousand inhabitants, which is very well, considering that she was without agriculture and manufacturers. Silver-mining was her sole productive industry. Since the above was in type, I learned from an official source that the above figure is too high, and that the yield for 1863 did not exceed twenty million dollars. However, the day for large figures is approaching. The Sutro Tunnel is to plow through the Comstock load from end to end at a depth of two thousand feet, and then mining will be easy and comparatively inexpensive and the momentous matters of drainage, and hoisting, and hauling of ore, will cease to be burdensome. This vast work will absorb many years, and millions of dollars, in its completion. 
but it will early yield money, for that desirable epoch will begin as soon as it strikes the first end of the vein. The tunnel will be some eight miles long, and will develop astonishing riches. Cars will carry the ore through the tunnel and dump it in the mills, and thus do away with the present costly system of double handling and transportation by mule teams. The water from the tunnel will furnish the motive power for the mills. Mr. Sutro, the originator of this prodigious enterprise, is one of the few men in the world who is gifted with the pluck and perseverance necessary to follow up and hound such an undertaking to its completion. He has converted several obstinate congresses to a deserved friendliness toward his important work, and has gone up and down and to and fro in Europe until he has enlisted a great moneyed interest in it there. End of chapter 52